real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, and guns. guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we're going to be talking about extremism, radicalization, and the intelligence field. And for that, I have Phil Gursky on the program. Phil has over 30 years as a strategic intelligence analyst. During his career, he specialized in radicalization and homegrown Islamist extremism. Phil has worked for several organizations, such as the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, which is CSIS, Community uh, Communications Security Establishment, CSE, Public Safety Canada, and the Ontario Provincial Police. Currently, Phil is the President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, is a Distinguished Fellow at the University of Ottawa Professional Development Institute, National Security, and an instructor on terrorism at the U of Ottawa. And Phil speaks on all matters related to terrorism, public safety, and intelligence. So welcome, Phil. Thank you, Nathan, for having me on the podcast. I'm quite, uh, quite honored to be on, as a, on your program. I always mess up all these government acronyms, <laughs> and uh, a bunch of the people I've had on lately have quite a few of them to their name. Mm. And yeah, they need to do something about all these acronyms, but hopefully I didn't mess up any of that. Um, we got your bio correct. Well, maybe we'll have a, gov- a new government agency with a new acronym just to make, make sense of all the other acronyms. We'll have the, the other government acronym organization or something. Yeah, that's a whole department in itself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're going to get into some of the topics uh, as mentioned. And uh, But before we do that, I always like to kind of get the guests to talk about themselves and um, promote themselves. And... Uh, say, well, you know, kind of the cool things that you've been through in your career, because uh, not a lot of people have worked for these organizations. So um, kind of tell me, where did things start for you? Where are you from? And uh, go through your life. <laughs> okay. Well, I think if you, if you could imagine somebody less likely to end up in a career in intelligence, uh, I might be that person. I mean, I was born and raised in London, Ontario. Uh, my parents had moved to London from Montreal. Um, where my brothers were born. I was the only one not born in Montreal. So I grew up basically in the 60s and 70s, did my elementary, secondary, and university education all in London. So I'm a graduate from the University of Western Ontario, which I think calls itself Western University now. But anyhow, mm. um, I graduated in 1983 um, with a master's degree in Spanish after having done an undergraduate degree in uh, French and Spanish with minors in German and Russian as well. And... The early 80s was not a good time to be an arts graduate anywhere in Canada. It was a, a bit of a recession back then. And uh, my job prospects were not looking that great. I was considering the possibility of doing a doctorate. I didn't really want to do a doctorate. I was kind of done with school at that point. I think I'd been at school for, what, let's say 13, oh, 18 years. Uh, I was just ready for something different. Um, a lot of people in London who didn't have great job opportunities to work for London Life, which is a major insurance company. Uh, I didn't want to do that. Uh, I was working at the YMCA part-time, put myself through school as a locker room attendant, and I decided uh, quite quickly that um, staring at naked men, especially naked old men in various states of uh, physical uh, fitness was not something I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. And so I, I was looking around for the possi- possible careers and and 
at the uh, what's called the Alumni Placement Office at Western, there was a little poster that said, the Department of National Defense wants linguists. Well, I was a linguist. I had four languages and smatterings of two or three other ones. So uh, I applied. And, um, and long story short, I ended up getting interviewed. Um, they were impressed with my qualifications, and they sent me a bunch of forms to fill out. I didn't really understand what the forms meant. Turned out it was my, it was my security clearance form. Mm. And eventually they said, okay, you, you've got your security clearance. Can you come to Ottawa? I said, sure. So I showed up in Ottawa thinking I'm going to work for the Department of National Defense, and I get my indoctrination. They said, well, not really. Um, we're not really national defense. We're something called Communication Security Establishment, or CSE, and here's what we do. Uh, and at this point, my brain's on overload because, first of all, I've been duped into what, who my employer is. And then I'm being sort of baptism by fire in the, world, in the world of intelligence and more narrowly, the world of signals intelligence, which is extremely sensitive, always has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, something that's developed probably since the U.S. Civil War, I would say, in terms of, you know, the advent of radio and things like that. So this is a, these are organizations that essentially hoover up signals in the sky from whatever frequency, uh, process them troll through them for uh, any nuggets of information that might be of interest, translate them if necessary, and then provide intelligence to clients. So I ended up at work starting at CSE in 1983, uh, in July of 83. I was working in a number of languages. They said, well, you're good at languages. We'll teach you some more. So I was sent on Arabic language training. I taught myself Farsi, uh, which is uh, Persian, modern, modern Persian in Iran. I picked up Indonesian as well and a bunch of other languages. And so I wow. basically had a career, Nathan, where... My job was to take a look at interceptor communications in a variety of languages and to mine them for intelligence to provide decision makers with information that could help them make better decisions. So, yeah, a kid from London, Ontario, uh, doing you know extremely sensitive, sticking intelligence, and I and I worked on files. This is not this is not boasting. This is simply a matter of fact. I worked on files that were so sensitive in terms of how we got information, how we processed it, that you could count the number of people on the, on the fingers of two hands who knew about it. And it was a real, uh, real sense of trust they had in my ability not just to mm-hmm. work the files, but to, to keep them secret. Because uh, you know the old, the old uh, World War II propaganda: loose lips sink ships. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very true in, in signals intelligence. If you, if you can't protect sources and methods, your sources dry up and your intelligence goes. So uh, I spent an amazing seventeen and a half years at CSD and, and loved every minute of it. Well, so kind of going back to the university days, or actually maybe even a bit before that. Uh, what drove you into working with languages? And that's a lot of languages to learn, but um, the half of those aren't in Canada in the 60s yeah. and 70s. So yeah. uh, how'd you even get uh, kind of interested in that field? Again, really serendipitously, I want to be a paleontologist as a kid, like any kid like dinosaurs, right? I love mm-hmm. dinosaurs. I love archaeology and I consume this stuff. I thought I was going to become an anthropologist or something when I was, uh, when I, when I grew up. I, and as somebody who grew up in the 60s in southern Ontario, we didn't even start French language training until grade six. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nowadays, like my grandkids are learning French in, in, in junior kindergarten. That, that wasn't the case in, in Ontario in the early 60s. So I didn't know. In fact, my first attempts at French were abysmal. I couldn't understand a bloody thing what was happening. By the time I got to high school, things had changed. I realized that I was good at languages. Um, I started taking Spanish in grade 10, so second year of secondary in Ontario. And loved it and realized this stuff's really cool. And then I think one of the, the big things that really, I think, changed my life was that while I was working at the YMCA, looking at naked men all, all night, um, I, I taught myself Latin. Because in those days, they weren't teaching Latin in high schools anymore. So I picked up, uh, in those days, it was the Ontario Ministry of Education had free correspondence courses. 
So they send you a textbook and a bunch of questions and you do your homework and there'd be a teacher who would mark it for you, all free of charge, of course. And Latin fascinated me. It was a, it was a different language. I was linked to French and Spanish, but much more complicated grammatically. And I thought this language stuff is really, really cool. And I was really good at it. And then by the time I got to Western, I, you know, I did French and Spanish. And then I realized that I did first year Russian, I did first year German, and it just kind of took off from there. And I found that not only was learning language, a language, a challenge and, and a fascinating one, I also like learning about language. And so I also had a parallel career as a linguist. And by linguist, I mean linguistics. I actually taught linguistics at university for 15 years at Carleton on a part-time basis and did doctoral studies in linguistics at the University of Toronto in the early 90s. So everything about language fascinated me and, and still does to this day. I, I don't consider myself a multilingual analyst anymore because many of my languages have atrophied because I haven't used them. Basically, if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. But I, I found out very early in life that uh, I had a thing for languages. I still have a thing for science and paleontology and astronomy and all kinds of things. But um, having a linguistic skill and having a, a particular, in, maybe innate, I'm not sure if it was innate or not, having a talent for learning languages puts you in a very good spot because you're much more flexible in terms of where you can work and what you can do. And obviously, I, ter- I, I translated, no pun intended, my, my skill in languages into uh, uh, 17 and a half years as a multilingual analyst with, with CSE. Well, and you would never be out of a job, ever. I know. No. <laughs> And, you know, it's funny, when I end up joining the security service later on, I mean, you travel the world talking to counterparts in a variety of countries, and you're, I was, I'm still fluently trilingual, so yeah, you go talk to uh, a sister service in a, in a Hispanic country, and, and you're addressing your counterparts in their language. Mm-hmm. You talk about, uh, you know, getting credibility and, and, and solidifying relationships, and as you well know, Nathan, mm-hmm. uh, it's not easy to, for rival, eh, rival's the wrong word, it's not easy for services from different jurisdictions to always get along. Yes. But if you can address them in, in, in their language and understand their culture, boy, you've got a long way to solidifying a very good relationship that, uh, you know, can result in the sharing of very, very valuable intelligence or, you know, information that's going to benefit your service as well as theirs. Did you have any family that was in you know, military, police, intelligence, anything like that? My father was with the Air Force World War II. Uh, he was never posted abroad. Um, my mother's brother, so my uncle, uh, he served in Belgium, um, or so, sorry, served in France during the Second World War, came back with a Belgian war bride. My Aunt Claire was Belgian. But you know, the one thing I, 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 I kick myself, and especially because I've just, I've just finished writing a book on the First World War, um, and the people from my, my, my village of Russell, which is just outside of Ottawa, who fought in the First World War, I would have loved to have had, uh, chatted with my uncle. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where, where did you fight? What happened to you? What experiences you have? But you know, you're 10 years old. You don't think of these questions kind of thing. So no, my, my background, my father was, was in business. My brothers both uh, learned trades. They went to uh, sort of technical high schools in London. And uh, that, that was their, I was the only one of the family that ever went to university. So no, uh, no background in the military, no bracket intel. And uh, kind of the, Odd sheep of the family, I guess you would say, in, in the sense that I didn't follow in my father's or my brother's footsteps. So when you uh, you finished high school, you go to university, you do your master's in Spanish, then you start going through like a bunch of other languages. What does the process look like when you actually apply to the D&D back at that time? Hmm. So is it, like, uh, is it like applying to police? You have the eight steps and you do yeah. your background and your yeah. disclosures and yeah. polygraph? Or- yeah, it, it was a little... Uh, it was a, a little more... Um, Do you remember most of it? A little less onerous back then. So again, this is the 1980s. I got to tell you this true story. 
So I applied to, to work for DND uh, originally in, in November of 1981 and never heard back. Uh, all of my colleagues in my program at the time had equally applied because they had, were the same boat as me, Spanish graduates, no job prospects. They applied and they all got rejection letters saying, thank you very much, but you know, maybe next time. So I never heard back. Um, the same poster appeared a year later. It was in October of 1982. I applied again, uh, never heard back. And on a whim, I went to the placement office because I'd heard that the D&D, as I thought they were, was going to be on campus doing some interviews. And so I was just curious whether my name was on the list. And so I go to the, the desk and I say, you know, my name is Phil Gursky. I applied to this job. I understand they're going to be on campus. Am I on the list? And, and the woman said, no, I'm sorry. Your name's on the list. So I started to walk away. And as I walked away, she said, oh, wait a minute. She turned the page and there was only one name on page two. That was my name. Mm. Now, the letter asking me to show up for the interview on campus arrived in my mailbox at home the day after the interview. So if I hadn't gone to the office to ask if I had an interview, I would have been a no-show. And they would have said, well, thirsty guy, obviously changed his mind, isn't interested. Yeah. And my one chance for working for D&D, i.e. CSE, would have been lost. So back then, so again, this is, so what the interview went well, as I said, I was given the form to fill out, which is a personal history form. I'm sure you're familiar with that in law enforcement. Yeah, it's about 20 pages of all kinds of stuff where you've lived and some, you know, names of your immediate relatives and your background, et cetera, et cetera, and references. I got um, a, the equivalent of more than a top secret clearance in three months. Wow. Now, nowadays, that's unheard of. Mm-hmm. It's minimum nine to 18 months because, of the first of all, the organizations have grown significantly in size since that time. And there's only so many people in that do security screening. So, you know, your, your field officers that, you know, go and knock on doors and say, hey, this Gersky guy's applied, you know, what's he like? Is he a, is he a mass murderer or can we trust him kind of thing? So my guy got it all done in three months' time. So by April of, of, of 1983, I got a letter saying, congratulations, uh, you, you've passed the screening, um, come to Ottawa. Now, in those days, there were no polygraphs. Mm. Once I got my, what's called a TSSI, so Top Secret Special Intelligence Clearance, uh, I was ready to work. Now, that's changed. Uh, polygraphs are now required. CSIS required polygraphs. I'll, we'll get to that when we talk about CSIS. And my understanding is CSE now requires polygraphs, but they did back in the, 19, in the early 80s. So here I am with the highest clearance possible. I, I basically, um, you know, end my lease on my apartment in London, go find a place in Ottawa, and by July of 83, I get there. So extremely simple. And it's all, of course, this is all done by mail, of course. There's no internet back then. Yeah. There's no email. This is all done. In fact, I still have the envelope. I kept from 83 announcing that, I, you know, congratulations, you've got this job with this National Defense Organization. And it was relatively seamless. But like I said, nowadays, it's a different kettle of fish because it's, uh, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people, Nathan, who, want, who are interested in careers in intelligence. I say, look, at this is not the kind of job where you put your application in on Friday at Starbucks and start Monday. Mm-hmm. You've got to wait a very, very long time. As I said, minimum nine months before it'll even be, you know, it's even possible and more likely longer than that. But way back then, way back just after the dinosaurs went extinct, um, it was a lot, a lot more, a lot more, a lot quicker process, I guess I'd say. So, uh, and you were saying like you show up, you apply to D and D, but then when you get there, um, they're like, "Well, you're actually looking at this other thing." Uh, is this like a like a movie scene? Like they lead you in this back door, and they're flipping switches, and brick walls are moving, and <laughs> all of a sudden, welcome to the fold. <laughs> um. Boy, you're, you're bringing back to my Get Smart days. The Get Smart TV <laughs> series, not the movie with, uh, yeah. with Steve Carroll. Um, 
No, they gave me an address I showed up to, and I, I, I noticed the address was odd because National Defense in Ottawa has this big headquarters right downtown, yeah. literally about a half kilometer from, from Parliament Hill. And this is a nondescript building uh, called the Sir Leonard Tilly Building. He was one of our first prime ministers in the 1890s. So I show up, and I, I'm wearing my 1983 uh, dark blue three-piece suit. If you remember three-piece suits, yeah. probably you don't remember three-piece suits. Yeah. But I only had one suit, um, so I had it. And I show up, and I'm ushered into this room, and this this man, who's the size of a small planet, um, gets behind his desk. He's a former RCMP officer. He was uh, in internal security. I'll just call him Joe, Mr. Joe. Mm -hmm. And he sits down, and he gives me the indoctrination. So he says, by the way, it's it's not not D&D, it's CSE. He explains the mandate, uh, explains what CSE does. And he says, uh, you know, congratulations, you're you're part of the organization. But And then he looks at me, and he says, he calls me son. I'm 22 years old. I said, son, um, you, you've, you've been indoctrinated into a very, very important, sensitive job within the Canadian government. Um, you need to protect what we've just told you. You can't tell anybody where you work or what you do. If you choose to disclose this information to those who aren't what's called a need to know or you know have it represent clearance, it's 14 years in a slammer. Um, okay, can I go home now? Because I need to think about things. And... Um, so I go home, like, I can't tell my parents, I can't tell my family, yeah. I can't tell anybody what I'm doing, because he's put the fear of God into me. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the next day I show up at work, and they said, okay, okay, you're, you're, you're supposed to be the, the wunderkind here with all the languages. Well, here's a bunch of stuff. What does it say? And that's where my career kind of took off. And uh, I, I honestly had a job, Nathan, where with, without, you know, with very few exceptions, and it, like nothing's perfect, but with very few exceptions, I had a career of 32 years between a CSC and the service, where I couldn't wait to get to work in the morning. Yeah, because each day was absolutely exciting. It was it was challenging. You knew what you were doing it was important, and it was cool. I mean, how many again? How many kids in London, Ontario, can you know look in the mirror and say, "Geez, I'm working on the most sensitive intelligence that Canada has access to." Yeah, wow. Like, wait, you know, when do I wake up from this this incredibly uh, uh, wonderful dream I'm having? Well, and I even think of just some of the stuff I've been to, seen, or you know. Uh, been a part of as a police officer and it's just like yeah i never thought i would have i'd be there but yeah. i don't know it's just like as the days go by you just find yourself you, there's an opportunity over here well you take that or yeah. somebody's like hey i need help with this and you just kind of go down yeah. these little paths and they yeah. kind of touch on other things that you're at you're like i never would have imagined i'd be here or seeing this or knowing this it's pretty cool hey you know, I, you know, so they in eight, late '84, they 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 knew I had a linguistic bent. I had a talent for languages, so they sent me an Arabic language training, and I did that in three months. So I was able to read Arabic fluently after three months. I couldn't speak it; I wasn't being taught to speak. I was being taught to, to be able to read, and then taught myself Farsi in a, a couple of months after that. And uh, that just my career took a, a real tangent towards the Middle East. Uh, eventually, terrorism. Like down the road when I joined the service, joined CSIS. But it was like, it was just one great thing after the other. And I, I never knew from day to day which language I was going to work in because I, I had the luxury of working in multiple languages. So it wasn't like I was doing the same task all the time. So when I joined the organization in the early 80s, it was still the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, and we were focused almost exclusively on the Soviet Union uh, and its military capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of my colleagues were Russian linguists. And they pretty well knew from day to day what they'd be working on. You know, let's face it, we were in an era of, of MAD mutually assured destruction. We had to know where the Soviets were, what their intentions were at all times. And so you kind of knew what you would be following on a day to day. I didn't have that luxury because the raw intelligence coming in could be in a, could, could have come in any one of 
eight to 10 languages and I had to be ready to figure out, okay, is there any intelligence in this piece? Because the vast majority of stuff is, is crap. The vast majority of stuff that you hoover up from the, from the atmosphere, is, there's no intelligence in it. Yeah. So you got to determine what, what's being said. Is there anything of interest? If the answer is yes, then you start translating it and processing and things like that. But yeah, I, I never knew from one day to the next what I'd be working on that day. Uh, one, one thing I wanted to ask just before you got into that was how long was it before you actually told your parents <laughs> what you're really doing? Or are they still wondering? <laughs> well, my mom, my mom is the ever curious one. And, um, I, you know, I said, mom, I just can't talk about it. So my mom didn't, didn't, didn't like that answer. Mm -hmm. So, um, she somehow figured out that, um, it had to be something to do with intelligence. So CSE used to be called the communications branch of the national, uh, national research council, CBNRC. And once it became CSE in 75, so it was a way to couch it within a bigger department, National Research Council. And so my mom somehow found this out. And uh, it turns out that the National Research Council has a wind tunnel at the Ottawa airport. Oh. The big thing is that NRC on the side. So my mom uh, finds this uh, information in a local paper, clips it out and mails it to me. Because I now I know what you do. I said, mom, I'm not working in a wind tunnel at the airport. Trust me, <laughs> I'm not doing that. You know, eventually you, you find ways to talk about things uh, such that you're not disclosing sensitive information. Mm -hmm. It helped a little bit that in September of 83, CSE was acknowledged publicly by the government of the day, which is the Trudeau government, the you know, elder Trudeau, not the current Trudeau, mm -hmm. uh, acknowledged that CSE existed. Prior to that, it didn't exist. Of course, I mean, people obviously guessed, in, you know, and maybe guessed rightly, but CSE was hidden, you know, for the better part of 40 years. Once it was made public, it became a little easier to say, yeah, I work for that organization, but I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah. I don't ask them what I do. And so, and, 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 and to CSE's credit nowadays, you know, what, 40 years later, they've got a website, they, you know, they hire openly, uh, they discuss, they're of course at the cyber command now for protecting against cyber attacks in Canada. So they've come a long way from when I was there and they were, you know, they were kind of this hidden organization. So you kind of learn what you can and cannot say. Yeah. Uh, and if, 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 if questioning starts getting uncomfortable, you say, I'm not going to say anything more. So piss off. Yeah, easy. Uh, well, and then you're saying that uh, right after you got there, you started learning Arabic. So even in the 80s, was that region of the world already a major player in things? Or is it just maybe the intelligence community could kind of see things were transitioning to them being more involved? Uh, well, it's important to point out that what CSE did in those days was what we call foreign intelligence. Now, foreign intelligence is defined as the capabilities and intentions of foreign states. So CSE cannot report on Canadians. They cannot collect Canadians' communications. That's illegal. Mm -hmm. okay, you need a warrant to do that. And CSE doesn't get warrants. So we were looking at, you know, the whole world in terms of what were countries saying? You know, how does it, you know, could it affect trade negotiations, for example? Let's say you're trading with Lower Slovovia. And you intercept lower Slobovian communication. Well, you might find out something to you that may be beneficial for you in your negotiations. So we, we were looking at, you know, pretty well the whole globe. I was part of a team in the early 80s, and this is no exaggeration. We were about a dozen strong. We were called the rest of the world. As I mentioned earlier, the other, the other part of the organization is all focused on the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and, and, their, and the allies, the so-called Warsaw Pact countries. We were a tiny afterthought. In fact, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine used to say, you guys, you know, you guys aren't really important. What we do is important. You guys are just an add-on feature. So we were looking at the whole world anyway from a foreign intelligence perspective. When you know, when you look at Arabic, you look at the Middle East, of course, what you think about is terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, certainly in the post-9-11 period, 
CSE did not do security intelligence in the, in the time I was there. They didn't start, they didn't do anything to do with terrorism until after 9-11. So we had an organization that was doing strictly foreign intelligence. And um, so, you know, the world's a big place, a lot of countries with different languages, different cultures. So you want to hire people that can understand those languages and cultures so that they can mine the, the vast amount of collected data for intelligence that's going to help the government of Canada. And often it's in a foreign language, which is why you want people that can speak foreign languages. Well, and the way you described it a bit earlier, how you kind of like are picking off bits of info out of the air and you're, I guess you're sending them signals. It just, it, the thought that immediately popped in my mind was like, these are the guys sending the, the broadcasts out into space and just hoping some alien person responds. <laughs> yeah, I, so just for the record, we didn't do any, any SETI, any search for, for extraterrestrial intelligence, but um, you do raise an interesting point. And, and one thing that people don't understand is even back in the 80s, um, the atmosphere was saturated with signals yeah. all over the spectrum, okay. all over the electromagnetic spectrum. And the challenge was just how do you collect it all and how do you process it? So in the in late 90s, I was actually the head of the data flow and collection uh, branch of the of CSE for uh, about a year or so. And I remember talking to my data flow manager and she told me, look, at, we're barely keeping up here. This is like drinking from a fire hose. Mm -hmm. We simply can't manage the, the, the volumes of data. That was in 1999. Can you imagine what the analogy is now in terms of, you know, the advent of the internet and everything else that's out there? Um, it's like drinking from Niagara Falls. You need supercomputers. Like the, just the sheer amount. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The sheer amount of data is just, it's, it's indescribable. I mean, we're inventing new, you know, there's petabytes of data. They're inventing new uh, prefixes to describe how much data is out there. And it changes like every six months, there's more and more data, which puts a huge challenge on your signal agency because they, they can't look at all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you have some AI involved just trying to go through it, although AI is not perfect. Um, I, I, think, I still think a human has to look at it at the end to see if there's anything, you know, really of value there. But it's a huge, um, it's a huge challenge just to get a handle on how much information is out there. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's actually, it's, it's, it's unthinkable. No one can wrap their minds around it. Um, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So while you're working at CSE, you did 17 and a half years there? That's correct. And then went to CSIS? Yeah. So wh what's the transition there? Because, uh, I mean, they're all intelligence to some degree, but is yeah. that like a, a whole new job or is it just kind of like a one police department to another? No, it was very different. So, I mean, just to give you a, a sense as to why I made the change. So I, I mean, in the federal government, I'm a sort of thing with policing, um, sort of 35 years is kind of the maximum upon which your pension is based. Yeah. So I'd exactly get the midpoint of my career. I also was at a point where if I wanted to progress I had to go into management and I tried it on three separate occasions and I didn't like it. I just don't like being a manager. It's not that I hate people. I just, I just got it boring. Yeah. Um, I always thought I was an off. I always, I, I like off, you know, you know, thinking off, human off, whatever kind of thing. And I'd already made a lot of good friends. So just for context, so I joined CSC in 83. CSIS was created in 84. Mm. So I'd only been there a year before CSIS made its appearance out of the old RSMP security service. And um, not surprisingly, there was a close relationship between CSC and CSIS. As you said, they were both intelligence agencies. So I got to know a lot of the people at CSIS right from day one. And because of my focus on the Middle East, you can imagine that CSIS had similar interests um, on you know, what's happening from a security intelligence perspective. Not a, CSIS, CSIS doesn't do foreign intelligence. They do security intelligence. So I was already a natural ally for, for CSIS from day one. And as, as I got to sort of the late 1990s, and I thought I wanted a bit of a change, um, a very good friend of mine, who sadly just passed away a, a few months ago, he said, look, why don't you just come work for us? 
we, we've been, you know, we know about you, known about you for decades, but we'd love to have you part of our team. So I arranged what's called a secondment. So I went to my boss at CSC and said, I need a change. Can I go to CSIS for a bit? And they said, yeah, okay. So I went to CSIS on secondment uh, in January of 2001, originally as an Iranian uh, analyst. I was looking, so Iran was my specialty, and they needed somebody at CSIS to help them understand what's happening in Iran and how it imp- impacts Canadian, you know, Canadian security kind of thing. Well, lo and behold, nine months later, 9-11 happened. And again, because of my Middle Eastern um, specialization, uh, I'm more pretty quickly into a terrorism specialist after that. And I knew that I wasn't going to go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, CSE was not doing counterterrorism back then. They, they changed quite quickly afterwards. But not only was the environment better for me at CSIS, so for example, I was now able to walk to work rather than commuting by three buses from where I was. Yeah. So I turned a, a shitty commute into a, a half an hour walk, which was great for my physical health, my mental health, et cetera. Uh, secondly, they paid me a lot more money. They say, we, we really want you to stay. And so we're going to pay you to stay. So I ended up retiring uh, at CSIS in, in 2015 uh, as basically what they call an EX equivalent uh, in the Canadian government. Even though I had no manager responsibilities whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They say, we, we're going to pay you what it takes to teach you because of your, your vast knowledge of this area. And we don't want you to be a manager. We want you to use that brain to help us figure out what's going on. So the transition was seamless because I was so familiar with the thesis mandate. Um, I knew everybody in the cafeteria. Uh, it really was, it was, there was no transition at all with the exception of the polygraph, which is never a, a fun thing to go through. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it's never, never, it's never uh, fun having to hold your sphincter for an hour. Uh, but, you know, aside from that, it's, uh, it was really a very, very easy process for me. And um, it was, it was a great move. I, I, I didn't regret leaving CSE. Uh, I just went to the CSE Retirees Association luncheon the other day. I met some old friends from the 80s and 90s, and it's great to see them. But I never thought, boy, this was a bad idea. Can I go back to CSE? Once I was at CSIS, I knew I was going to stay at CSIS. So what CSE is, their main function, I guess, is more dealing with like electronics and stuff now? That's correct. Was it the same back then? Yeah. And Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah they do what's called signals intelligence. So they, they, they don't do humans. They don't do anything else. They basically, like I said, they hoover up signals, uh, you know, in the atmosphere. They process them. They transmit if necessary, and they extract the intelligence. So that's, you know, and, and in that, CSC is, is very similar to its partners. So we, we talk about the Five Eyes community a lot of intelligence. The Five Eyes is the Anglo Club. It's a post World War II club. So Australia, ourselves, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, the United States, um, those five countries have very, very close relationships when it comes to signals. Uh, share a lot of information, an awful lot of information and capability. And in fact, you, you've got people from, from the organizations embedded to each other all the time as, as the condies and that kind of thing. So it's a very close relationship. And so CSE still does that. But as I said earlier, the other thing it's, it's, it's brought on probably over, within the past decade is a so-called cyber command. Um, so they have Canada's best cyber analysts trying to figure out who's trying to hack into our systems, you know, Russian trolls or other states trying to, you know, um, attack our infrastructure or uh, steal information. So CSE is Canada's primary cyber defense as well. But again, we didn't do that back then. Well, we kind of did, mm-hmm. but not to the same extent. And then once you were with CSIS, did you get more into any kind of field work, like dealing with actual human sources, or is it mostly still on the electronic side? No, so so CSIS has uh, multiple capabilities. So it, it is primarily known as a human, so a human intelligence organization. What that what that means is that they recruit human sources mm-hmm. and they run them. So they you know so you know Billy Bob 
is close to uh, Joey here. And we know that Joey is running a, uh, a terrorist cell mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in Toronto, for example. But we need Billy Bobby to get really close to Joey so we can report back on what's happening. And, and so, you know, it's a very, and you, and you know this from your police time, uh, Nathan. I mean, human sources are gold. Yeah. Uh, as long as they're reliable, mm-hmm. and because people lie, this is why you confirm with the multiple uh, avenues. But human sources that can, you know, I worked on cases where human sources were the source. If we didn't have human sources, we wouldn't have been successful in stopping bad things from happening. Yeah. Normally, as an analyst, you don't get involved to that level in ops. I was the exception because I, I, I was one of the few who actually cared what the in- investigators were, were writing. Most investigators said, you know, I, I uploaded it into the box. Nobody cares. Well, I would read the stuff every day and ask them questions about it. And so they knew that I, that I, I was interested in what they were doing. And so they would invite me to their source keepers, which was very rare for an analyst back then. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of sort of, um, I guess I'd call them code debriefings. I was never a human source runner. That wasn't my job. But they bring me into, uh, you know, a, an undisclosed location one night and we'd sit down and have a conversation. Uh, and because of my background in understanding terrorism, I also helped train some sources how to pretend you're part of the group, mm-hmm. how to show the signs that you're, you know, that you're not obviously a, a police or, or intelligence organization source kind of thing. Um, CSIS also does electronics intercept under what's called a, a Section 21 warrant, what you would call a Part 6 warrant. So they can go to federal court and say, um, we're investigating Phil Gursky. Here's what we know about him. But there's a whole bunch of gaps that we have. And these gaps, we feel, can only be met through intercept of, of his emails, his telephone, that kind of thing. And if a judge agrees, and judges rarely agree on this because this is a very intrusive power. I don't know what percentage of police warrants don't get accepted, but an awful lot of intelligence ones say, you haven't shown your case. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a very, very powerful tool for a government. We're not Kazakhstan. We're a democracy. And unless you show uh, a lot of reasons why we should grant you this power, you're not getting it. So CSIS can, in fact, intercept communications under, under Section 21 of the CSIS Act. And you know, we can also do physical surveillance. We have surveillance teams, just like police have surveillance teams. And we have partners, both domestic and international, uh, who share information. So it's really kind of the A to Z of intelligence, I would say. So where CSC was narrowly stated, I would say that CSIS was very much an all-source intelligence organization. And, the, and that all-source helped you to understand plots, terrorist plots, or espionage attempts, that kind of thing. Yeah. The big difference, of course, is that CSIS is not law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So it does not collect to an evidentiary standard, like, like you guys do, yeah. which means that CSIS information cannot, cannot be used in court. Yeah. Nor does CSIS want the information used in court because of the way it's collected. Um, it's a delicate dance that we do with the RCMP because, of course, they're the jurisdiction when it comes to national security. There are, there are methods and there are avenues to share information, but very, very carefully. So one thing that CSIS, the RCMP, never do, we never do any joint investigation. Yeah. Never. Yeah. Because the RCMP has a different function. They're collecting evidence to go to court. We're collecting intelligence to buy the government of Canada. So it's, you got to be careful, but I think it's worked. Most of the cases I worked on, um, the bigger ones, ended up becoming RCMP uh, investigations that led to arrests and convictions. So the system works. Not perfectly, but it works pretty good. One thing I've always wondered, and I, maybe hopefully I framed the question so it makes sense, <laughs> but in a democracy, so in you know, U.S. or Canada, and like you were saying, it, it, it can be very hard to get some of these warrants authorized because we have all the laws and we follow laws and stuff. And a, and a charter, charter rights and freedoms, right? Yeah. And how is it, how hard is it for us to essentially, I want to say, do our jobs when it comes to intelligence and collection? And then when you compare that to someone like China or Iran, 
and you know the the government controls everything it's like you think they would just all day every day be able to do whatever they want they'd be uh, a million miles ahead of us so how how hard is it to do our job if that makes sense it's hard but it's hard for a good reason i think that you know, if you're with the Iranians or the Chinese, uh, it's pretty simple because there's, you don't have to convince anybody that, w- that what you want. You just do it yeah. because you've got state sanction, like you said. I think for us, it, it means we've got to really cross our T's and dot our I's very carefully. So you just you don't apply for a warrant on shits and giggles. Mm-hmm. You have to have a really, really strong case, and which makes you really careful of what you do. So I don't, I don't know what, how long the affidavits are that police do to go to court, but ours are pretty damn long. Yeah. And you disclose, these are very special courts, so the judges have the same clearance that you do, the highest clearance, and you lay out in exquisite detail, here's everything we know about this guy, here's what we don't know, and we really feel that we need that warrant, intercept warrant, to fill in those gaps. And the judge will go through it line by line and say, yeah, you've made a strong case here, or no, sorry, uh, you haven't exhausted every other tool that you have. And so until you do so and come back with me with more information, I'm not going to sign off on this warrant, which means you don't have the power to do so. I think that makes us better. Uh, it makes us more careful. Yeah, I think it makes us not see this as a frivolous tool that we just apply for, for for the hell of things. I think we realize that if we don't do our jobs properly, it's going to get thrown out. And if you get thrown out a few times in a row, then you've lost the, the confidence of the court. Yeah. And so next time you go in, they're going to say, well, what's different now? You're, you've, you've given me shitty cases to approve the past 10 times. Why would I prove it on the 11th time? Mm-hmm. So I, I think it probably, you know, it, it, I don't say it's done easily because I'm pretty sure the investigators or IOs and intelligence officers, what they call it, get pretty frustrated when they get warrants turned down. But I think it's a good thing because it, it, it makes you less complacent and it makes you say, okay, what did I do wrong? What, how could I word this better? What more information could I disclose to get the warrant that we need in this particular case? And so I, I think that's a good thing in a democracy because I don't want to get to the point where, you know, judges are signing off warrants like they're giving out candy. We don't want to get to that point. We don't want to become Iran or the PRC when it comes to the powers that our, our law enforcement and security intelligence have. They're constrained. They're constrained for a reason because we're a democracy, because we have a charter right and freedom, because we have a constitution. And, and I think we, we, we want that. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I know it's frustrating. I'm sure it's frustrating for law enforcement. You know, you know this is a bad guy. You, you know for a fact He's up to all kinds of no, no good, but because you didn't do your due diligence, you're not going to get that extra power. Yeah. So I think it just makes you work harder and work better as, as law enforcement or security intelligence. Well, I wonder too, and I don't know if there'd ever be a way to determine this, but maybe it, it generates better information, better intel. Yeah. Whereas if I'm just collecting en masse on, you know, people, uh, at, like you're saying, there's, there's endless amounts of data and it's just ever growing. So yeah, there's just even more stuff for you to sift through and, and then you start getting bad data and stuff that's not accurate. So yeah. maybe it focuses you a little more. Well, and, and it also becomes a resource issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, okay, so you're running an operation. You'll say you're running two human sources. Well, yeah, that, it takes, you know, at least two handlers and some other, you know, other people. If you're running surveillance ops, I mean, as a state of people, <laughs> surveillance isn't Eddie Murphy uh, and Nick Nolte in a car. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood is not a good reflection of all surveillance. Takes teams, multiple teams. Um, it can be frustrating. You can sit there for a long period of time and nothing's happening, but you got to be there in case you know something does happen. It's the same thing with warrants. I mean, intercepting is the easy part. Then you got to break it down. Then you got to get someone to listen to it. 
If it's in a foreign language, you might be dealing with a dialect for which you have no capability. So you got to start finding people that understand that dialect. So in a sense, um, yeah, getting a warrant's great, but that's getting the warrant is the easy part, mm-hmm. even as hard as it is. The hard part is that you have to actually start do something with it uh, and troll through all that data. And as I said earlier with SIGIN, the vast majority of, of things uh, are garbage. Let me give you a, a sort of an analogy, Nathan. I actually did some some transcribing. So I was listening to, I had, had the headphones like I have now, and I was listening to some you know, interceptive CSE. And, you know, we always say, the first five minutes of any conversation is absolute bullshit. Yeah, all the niceties. <laughs> hey, how you doing? How's, how's the missus? All that kind of stuff. You have to you wait for that kind of stuff. And then you get to the actual meat of the matter. And in some cases, people are very, what we call ComSec uh, ready. They're very secure in their communications. And they, they assume they're being intercepted. They assume they're being listened to. So they're very careful about what they say, which makes it harder for you to determine what are they actually saying. And I remember a case here, I won't go into details for obvious reasons, but where someone used a bit of a metaphor uh, about something. And, and I was able to figure out what the metaphor meant. And it was incredibly important. So the person figured out Someone's got, you know, someone's intercepting what I'm saying, so I'm not going to come out and call it what it is. I'm going to call it something else. And you have to really rock your brain and say, okay, okay this doesn't make any sense in the context. Mm-hmm. What are they actually saying? And uh, so, yeah, so intercept is great, but it creates a mountain of work down the road in terms of levels of the volume of information, um, processing it, mining it for intelligence, and then uh, making it part of the picture. So now you have not just your human sources and your surveillance sources, now you have your intercept sources. And it goes, to, it's kind of like making a mosaic, right? Yeah. You get little pieces of glass here and there, and it all comes together to make a picture. And it's that picture that CSIS would use to advise either the government or through mechanisms that we have to advise the RCMP of, yeah, there's something you might want to take a look at here because it's, it's, it's gone beyond our remit. Yeah. This has gone into a criminal case, not an intelligence case. We don't do criminal activity or criminal investigations. So, uh, yeah, it's all part of the picture, and, it, and uh, it's rarely really simple. But it, it takes time. It takes a lot of resources. Are, uh, what would be like one of the, maybe the, would you say is the most uh, interesting period of your career, whether it was with CSE or CSIS or even like you, you worked with Public Safety Canada, the OPP. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what would be kind of the most interesting period, you would say? Mm-hmm. Oh, God, that's a tough question. Um, I would say a couple things. I mean, all of it was, was fascinating, and a lot of, most of it I can't talk about. Um, I, I think becoming an Iranian specialist in the 1980s was really cool. Not only did I get to learn another language, i.e. Farsi, but think of what Iran was up to post-revolution in 79. I mean, they were mucking about around the world. Uh, they were not an ally anymore. I mean, under the Shah, they were allies. And all of a sudden, you've got a theocratic regime under the Ayatollahs. They're not our friends anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're doing all kinds of stupid shit that we, we don't want them to do. So getting a handle on what Iran was all about was really, really cool. And and, and learning a language um, that has no relationship to Arabic, even though it's written in Arabic script, and is actually a, a the latest version of a 5,000-year-old language. From, so the linguist in me thinking, this is really, really cool stuff. So I really like doing the Iran stuff. And um, I miss it. I had to drop Iran um, from my sort of responsibilities around 2005 because of the next thing I'll talk about, which is terrorism. I was taking over. I couldn't do both simultaneously. Yeah. So that, that I think was a highlight. And then, so in the post 9-11 period, um, surprise, surprise, counterterrorism assumed a, a much greater importance from an investigative perspective, especially Islamist terrorism. So the Al-Qaeda type. Watching 
terrorism evolve in the 2000s and 2010s and watching it manifest itself here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Salt Lake, the Toronto 18. We had Operation Samosa in Ottawa. We had the Via Passenger Plot. We had the Victoria Legislature Plot on Canada Day in 2013. Uh, all the Canadians that went and fought for Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Al-Shabaab in Somalia and understanding what that all meant. And so starting in the end of the mid-2000s, I I decided I want to take a look at why. Why would a kid from Timmins yeah. think that joining ISIS was a good idea? So I looked at this, what we call the process of radicalization to violence. So what 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 happened in that person's life? Was it a, a life change? Was it something else? Were there some kind of inherent conditions that led them uh, more uh, naturally to this kind of ideology? And we found that, in fact, it's very complicated. There's no one size fits all. But trying to map, based on the intelligence we have, trying to map who these people were, and what they ended up doing was was a really intellectually stimulating for me, I thought. Um, and as a consequence, I became really adept at understanding Islam as terrorism. But that also required reading texts from the 1300s, because the ideology was based in the 1300s. And so learning more about history, going back to my, 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 my days as a kid where I wanted to learn everything, uh, you know, learning about 13th century scholars and what they were saying about violence was absolutely fascinating. And then um, being a very, very, very tiny part in a massive machine that stopped a ship from blowing up. Yeah. You, you know what? You can't replace that. So the Toronto 18 is dismissed as a gang that could shoot straight. They had three tons of ammonium nitrate. Mm-hmm. They had three targets. And they had a working detonator. So if we hadn't stopped them in, in, in June of, 19, of 2006, they would have carried out three attacks two in the GTA, probably one um, outside of the uh, Air Force Base in Trenton, they could have killed hundreds, if not thousands of people. I don't, you know, one ton of ammonium nitrate, uh, D&D did a mock-up of what happens when you explode one ton. Mm-hmm. It's not pretty. Yeah, um, would, have, would have been massive casualties. And we, we stopped it because of our intelligence. And that, you got to think, yeah, well done. Um, Canadians are alive today because of the, uh, us and the RCMP and what we did. So you take a, you take about a certain amount of pride in that. Because you've you done good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you go home at night saying, I did what I could to stop something terrible from happening. That, that to me is definitely, I, I will never forget those lessons. And, and again, I played a very, very, very small role in it, but I was part of it. And, and, and I don't know if I call it pride or maybe just a sense of a job well done. I think it, and it, I'm sure it's the same with law enforcement. Yeah. When you wrap up a gang or an organized crime or a fentanyl ring or a child abuse ring, whatever, you can go home and say, yeah, you know what? Damn it. Because of what I did as part of a team, people are resting uh, more easily tonight, and that, that and that's a good that's a good feeling to have. Well, and uh, maybe some of the more current events right now when you talk about because you mentioned before Five Eyes, um, but then how important the intelligence is to actually protecting people. Uh, mm. There's a lot of I'll say criticism nowadays about Canada. Some people are calling it the Four Eyes. Um, yeah. Like, how prepared is Canada? Uh, are you in a position now to kind of comment on where we lay in the whole scheme of things and, and how prepared we are, how useful are we to the other eyes? So a huge caveat. I mean, I, I retired in 2015, so I, I have had access to Intel for going on eight years now. So, but I mean, I read the papers, everyone else does. You know, I read online stuff. Um, one thing that used to bother us at Intel is that here in Canada, despite the fact we have a very long history of very successful intelligence, I mean, really good intelligence, going back to the Second World War, 
we never created what I would call an intelligence culture here in Canada. What I mean by that is it has been my experience that most people in government don't get intelligence. And by get it, I mean they don't understand the usefulness of it. Um, they see it as kind of a complication because it's so highly classified. And as a consequence, they don't use it. Mm-hmm. Now, there are exceptions, right? We used to have clients that I've had clients who would stop meetings until the intelligence got in their hands because that intelligence had an impact on the meeting they were having. And that's kind of cool, too. But generally speaking, we don't have the maturity of the Brits or the Americans, not even arguably the Australians do. We don't understand the usefulness of intelligence at the government level. And as a consequence, um, it doesn't get used. I mean, let me listen to the current government saying, but the prime minister says he was never briefed on Chinese interference before in our elections. I was going to bring that up. Excuse me? Yeah. yeah. Excuse me? <laughs> There's no goddamn way the PM was not, you know, information was not made available to the PM saying exactly what everyone knows, that China was screwing around in our elections in 2019, 2021. In fact, they've been doing it for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, directors have been saying since the 2000s that China's not our friend. And here's what they're doing. People, people ignore it for all kinds of reasons, economic relations. You know, Nathan, I, I sometimes wonder, we're kind of, sometimes we're too nice here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And, you know, intelligence is sort of, um, there was a famous um, Secretary of State, I think his name was Stinson in the States, who famously said in the 1930s, gentlemen do not read other gentlemen's mail. Mm. Well, I got news for you, Stinson. Intelligence has been going on since, you know, Adam got the apple from Eve. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's called the second oldest profession for a reason. I never know what the first one is, though. Anyhow, um, <laughs> The point is that intelligence has been going on forever. I just read an interesting article uh, in a history magazine about Queen Victoria's intelligence apparatus. It was really cool. And Queen Victoria used her daughter as an intelligence source to figure out what the Russians and the Germans are doing in the the late uh, late, uh, 19th century. So we just don't get it here in Canada. And and we've underinvested incredibly. So, you know, in, in the 90s, so after the Cold War, the assumption was that intelligence had played a role but was no longer necessary. We won the Cold War, the Soviet Union dissolved, the Berlin Wall fell. Who needs intelligence anymore? So we, we actually shrank incredibly in size after, after the Cold War. That's since been changed. Uh, both organizations are somewhere north of 3,000 in terms of their staff. Still not nearly enough, but I don't think there's a recognition for the value of intelligence. And, and it's getting noticed, as you said, by our allies. Uh, people are talking about the four eyes now. Well, and even the military, and, uh, the, yeah, and, and, right? The military's shrunk. Yeah. And now they're trying to, oh no, we are short tens of thousands. <laughs> exactly. We used to joke that New Zealand was kind of the fifth eye in the sense that, you know, they're so small and they're lovely people, the Kiwis, but they had such a small intelligence because they're a small country. But, you know, people now say maybe Canada is kind of in fifth place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's not good. I, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. How do you convince officials that intelligence is worth using? Uh, we saw during the inquiry into the Emergencies Act that CISA's intelligence was ignored yeah. about the nature of the of the protest. Uh, CISA stated categorically, and I quote, we looked into these wankers. They did not constitute a threat under the national security as defined by the CISA's Act. Mm-hmm. So, and they, it was ignored, completely ignored, because it wasn't convenient. It didn't fit the narrative the government wanted to spout. So I don't know where this goes. Um, the organizations are still hiring, uh, which is good. But uh, I think morale's in the toilet at thesis for a whole bunch of reasons I won't get into. Uh, and it's unfortunate because there are a lot of really, really good people that work for these organizations that, that, that deserve their support, that deserve the financing and the resource. Yeah. And, and governments, you know, whether because we're in a recession and, you know, post-COVID, I don't know what it is. But can you imagine the, the value of intelligence during COVID alone? Yeah. 
you know, if intelligence could help you figure out, you know, where the next, you know, outbreak's going to occur, that's invaluable information. And that's intelligence. You'd have more time on your hands because nobody was uh, allowed out to go anywhere. So there's less people to do surveillance on and less <laughs> other things to focus uh, resources on. So this is true. But, but it also had a huge impact on the intelligence agencies because um, you were told to stay from home. You can't do intelligence from home. Mm-hmm. It's simply impossible because of the nature of the work and the sensitive information. So that was kind of a double-edged sword, right? Yeah, it was great to be at work, but it also meant you were with a thousand other people, some of whom may have had contact with people who were COVID positive. Mm-hmm. So you kind of risk, you know, becoming infected yourself because you, you couldn't work from home like the rest of the government could. Well, and, and just like you're saying, a lot of people don't, well, either they don't know how to use the intelligence, like if it, especially if it comes from a source, uh, or they're kind of scared to. Yeah. We see that in policing all the time. Yeah. There's a lot of people, as soon as you hand them any information, they think, uh, I'm either, well, main one is kind of my ass is going to be on the line because somebody's going to die from this yeah. or it's going to get mishandled. Yeah. And, and then I don't yeah. trust it. And, um, yeah. oh yeah, it gets kind of blown off all the time. So, you know, yeah, you know, as well as I do, I mean, uh, intelligence is only good as accuracy. So the, you know, the, I used to like to say the phrase that, you know, the real estate, uh, you know, model location, 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 mm-hmm. while intelligence is corroboration and corroboration and corroboration because yeah. anyone's force can lie. And unless you corroborate it from independent sources, your intelligence is, is untested, which mm-hmm. means it could be wrong. And do sources lie? Hmm, let me think now. First curveball lied about Iraqi weapons of mass destruction back in 2003, which led the American decision to go and raid Iraq. Go figure. Yeah. Because it wasn't corroborated from multiple sources. Yeah. Well, and that was a costly one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, eh? Um, well, I want to talk a bit about your current position. So mm-hmm. running Borealis. Mm-hmm. Uh, what exactly does the company do? What do you do? And uh, who do you work for? Well, uh, I am the CEO and president and chief bottle washer. So uh, I do everything with the company. Uh, no, in all honesty, Nathan, what I did was I retired from uh, from thesis. I was at public safety on Sacramento for 18 months at the end. Um, but I retired from the civil service after 32 years and change in uh, in May of 2015. Uh, immediately started working for the OPP, the anti-terrorism section, because they'd recruited me hearing I retired. Hmm. And they said, because they were expanding their anti-terrorism um, investigations at the time. And they said, we, you know, this is, remember, this is just post Nathan Cirillo. Yeah. This is the attack in Ottawa. And, and so um, a lot of people said, um, wow, maybe we can help the effort to look at homegrown cells and things like that. The OPP recruited me as an advisor in, in 2015. Um, but at the same time, I decided, well, I don't think I'm going to go quietly into retirement. Um, you know, taking up Needlepoint probably wasn't in my immediate future. Uh, I'd already started writing books. My first book was ready for publication the day I retired kind of thing. But I also thought, what are, I'm just going to incorporate just for shits and giggles and see what happens. Because uh, I wanted to separate my pension income from any other further income I, I had. So put a firewall between the two. So I basically incorporated and I, I you know, put out my shingle as somebody who works in intelligence. If you want somebody to take a look at something for you, or I'm really good at public speaking, for example. I love doing public I'm one of those rare animals that actually like getting in front of a crowd. And so I'd often do presentations around the world on terrorism, especially. So, so Borealis is really just a way for me to funnel any post-retirement activity in the same area, but obviously with no access to intelligence and that kind of thing. And it's, it's been pretty successful. I've had some contracts here and there with, with companies, um, mostly private sector. Interestingly, <laughs> very few with the government. Mm. Uh, I, but I've, you know, I've, te- I've taught courses here and there. I've uh, been keynote speaker at conferences here and there. And it's just been a way for me to 
keep a foot in the door, but it also meant that I, I knew. And it was, so when I worked at thesis, uh, the first two hours of my day were nothing but reading. So what happened over the past 24 hours, both from an open source perspective and what we we're seeing in our investigations. I still read two hours every day, first thing in the morning mm-hmm. to see what's happened in the world, who's killing who, um, mostly from a terrorism perspective, although I have been doing some writing on foreign interference of late, although it's not my specialization. And so I thought, I still have that enthusiasm to do that. Yeah. And yeah, I don't mind putting the work. Hey, I'm retired. I don't have to go to work anymore. And as a consequence, I can do whatever the hell I want when I want to do it. And so far, so good. So it's been almost eight years since I've retired. Uh, my kids uh, remind me constantly that I clearly suck at retirement because I'm showing no <laughs> signs of doing it. Uh, you know, seven books and counting kind of thing. But I, right now, it's just because I love doing it. I, 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 I'm not going to lie to you. I miss the access. Uh, I miss working at Intel. It's cool. The information was great. I miss working as part of a team. But this is just, I mean, my way to contribute towards the general conversation. And and as a, as a consequence of that, I also decided I was, I was going to become media friendly. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't mind talking to CTV and Global and CBC and radio stations across the country and things like that, because I really felt that the voices that were being heard on the national security front were not necessarily the best in the sense that they didn't work at the coalface. Yeah. They don't have that kind of experience that people like you and I have. And as a consequence, they may be really smart people, but what they say is happening isn't informed by actually having worked that kind of path. So it's like somebody, you know, who studied, uh, I don't know, organized gangs in an academic setting talking about police operations against gangs. Well, what do you know about them? You yes. know, work operation against the gang. You can describe the gangs from all kinds of perspectives, but not from an operational one. So I wanted to lend my voice to that general conversation. I've always said that about uh, things like use of force, as simple as that. All the experts that seem to be on the media are people who've probably never been in a fight in their life, <laughs> but they've read books on it. So yeah. I, I always question who it is. Well, exactly. My, my son-in-law, uh, one of my son-in-law, um, it was a friend of the Ottawa police officer. He, he got a ride along one night. He said, that he, it opened my eyes. Mm-hmm. as to what police have to do. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism of police forces. Some of it may be warranted. Most of it's probably not. But I say to people, you know, when, they, when you get a call at two in the morning because someone's beating the shit out of his wife, you don't have to get out of bed. Yeah. But a police officer does. And officers put themselves in danger. I mean, we've seen deaths of police officers in Canada of late. The most recent one, I received a constable in BC. They put themselves in very dangerous positions. You don't, you can sleep soundly. Yeah. Not you haul your ass out of bed to deal with that. And I think, just think of that for a while kind of thing, right? So, um, no, I... It, I find the conversation is um, it's, it's immature, uh, it's, it's ill-informed, and it's definitely tinged with call it woke, call it cancel culture, call it what you want, defund the police, all that kind of stuff. Are there problems? There are always problems. Are there cops and spies that shouldn't be there? Absolutely. We've all worked with and for assholes in our life that probably shouldn't be in that job. But the, you know, to taint the entire the entirety of law enforcement, security, intelligence is bad mm-hmm. because of the existence of one or two bad examples is simply uh, it's unwarranted and it's unfair. Yeah. So if I can sort of shed a bit of light as to what this, this world is all about, I don't mind talking to you. Well, and kind of on that. So when we talk about media and what's being put out there right now, do you find the public is well informed? Or is there a lot of stuff missing? Are people kind of uh, not hitting the bullseye when it comes to, you know, I, I mean, you can't really f- know what people are reading. But when you look at yeah. these articles, are at least the right messages getting out there as to like, hey, we have this foreign influence going on, or hey, there's terrorism in this part of the world, or is everything just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, um, 
they're they're doing things for the wrong reasons. They're putting things out there like that. You know, we're, we we have a bit of a paradox here. We, we've never in our entire history um, had access to so much information. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's it's incredible how much is out there. Uh, you know, I say I read two hours a day. That's that's not even a a, a, a a rounding error on all the information that's out there. No one can can, can manage the kind of thing. But even in this infinite or quasi-infinite amount of information, we're actually very poorly informed for a couple of reasons. One is because I think some of the dominant voices aren't very good, uh, and they have an agenda. And I'll, I'll, I'll speak to one in a second that they want to they want to put forward. Secondly, um, there's confirmation bias. People tend to read things that they like and don't read things they don't like. So if they think the sky is green, they'll read stories about the sky being green, even yeah. though it's blue, because you know they, they already made that choice. And as a consequence, they're not actually all that that well informed. I, media sources have biases. I mean, uh, you know, late breaking news. What the National Post reports and what the Global Mail reports are two different things, because mm-hmm. you have an inherent editorial bias. And I'm not saying either one is right or wrong. It's simply that there's an inherent bias by the people who run those kind of things. The example I want to I want to use with you, Nathan, is. is, is we, we've been at, we've been in a state of um, panic. As a U.S. Uh, academic, a Canadian from Montreal, that I, I like to cite, she calls it panic porn. Mm-hmm. We're, we're at this stage now where everybody's panicking over everything, and one of the other people are panicking over are so-called violent incels. Mm-hmm. Where incels stands for involuntary celibates, and there's an op-ed piece in the Globe Mail recently that says all incels are violent misogynists, which is complete horseshit. But you know, we, we've had a couple of spectacular attacks that have been covered. And now the government of Canada says that violent incels is an investigative priority for our security services. Wow. A couple, prob- couple problems with that. First of all, uh, incels have been around a long time. Mm-hmm. They're mostly just lonely people who can't form meaningful relationships for a whole host of reasons. And they just want to find companionship. The number of incels who are violent is gazillions of the percentage point. Secondly, and I know this from a, a friend of mine in the United States who follows you. She's not an incel herself, but she follows and she's talked to hundreds of incels, if somebody goes online and starts threatening violence, the first thing the incels do is call the FBI. Hey, I got this guy, and he's going off the deep end, and he's so angry, he, he looks like he might become violent. So it's in their interest to call the guys who are going to be violent, because they don't want anybody to die, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, more importantly, a lot of cases that are used as sort of the, uh, the test case, or the, the primary example of violent incels, have nothing to do with incel. So the, the most famous one is Alec Manassian. He's a guy in Toronto back in 2018, drove his van down Young Street, yes. uh, killed 10 people, wounded another 16, was found guilty on 10 counts of first-degree murder, 16 of attempted murder. And the judge had a, I, I read her ruling just recently, again, uh, had a brilliant summing up of, of Mr. Manassian, and it turns out he was not an incel. Mm-hmm. He lied. And he lied to, to because he wanted to be important. He wanted to be noticed. If you remember, Nathan, when he was arrested, he has his cell phone in his hand yeah. and he approaches the cop. Why? Suicide by cop. Yeah. He wanted to die an important person. And now he's going to have his ass rusting in jail for the next 40 years, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But Manassian is cited as the primary example in Canada of why violent incels are a national security priority. And it's based on a lie because Alec Manassian was not an incel. Violent. I mean, he was a, he could have been misogynist. Well, even then the judge said he probably wasn't. He was just a pathetic little man who wanted to, get his name, uh, you know, burned into, into our minds for forever kind of thing. And yet that's being used erroneously to justify this, this panic porn uh, over violent incels. And if you still go online, you'll still see references to Manassian yeah. as the poster child 
And so in that sense, you know, so long answer to your short question, we are being misinformed. And we're being misinformed in part because there's an agenda out there. Yes. And and, and I'm going to call it what it is. People um, think that, you know, the current terrorist priority, and it's been this way for the past 25 years, is what we call Islamist terrorism, jihadi, around the world. They're still killing out. They're still carrying more than 99% of all attacks around the world. If you don't believe me, follow me on Twitter. I, I tweet about it every day. People are tired of hearing about jihadi. And so they want to, they, they want something new. Mm-hmm. And the new thing now is old white guys who can't get laid and a few of whom carry out acts of violence. They're the new threat to national security. Yeah, there are some. And, and I'm sincerely hoping that law enforcement are following them in case that, you know, they have the intel on them. But to say that violent incels somehow have surpassed, um, jihadis in terms of a death count is categorically false. I just saw a stat the other day. There have been tens of thousands of victims of terrorism this year so far. Tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. How, how many do you think were carried out by violent insults? Probably zero that they can none. prove. None. <laughs> yeah. None. And yet tens of thousands were carried out. Yeah, no, no. The far right is, is of concern, and that's, that's good. And it's not good, but it's good that we're aware that the far right has mutated. We investigated the far right in Canada in the 1990s. A good friend of mine was the chief investigator. These guys couldn't organize a piss up in a bar. Well, and that's what I... Well, they're getting a little more... That's how I understand it too, though, is like everybody wants to say far right, especially as soon as a white person does something. Yeah. They want to say it's a far right thing. But from my own experience, being on both uh, public safety unit, which uh, lack of a better term, riot team, uh, and then doing gang stuff. Uh, I've talked to people in our hate crimes unit. Uh... These, these groups never come up in the conversation. Even when we go out and we see a protest, um, they, they want to say, like, this is an anti-immigration uh, group and yeah. they're white supremacists. And it's like 10 dudes that can't get anybody to follow them, uh, uh, their ideology or anything. I don't think they're well-funded, at least not based on, like, the things they're doing out there. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, I don't see them as the big threat and what's funny is uh, actually, well, maybe not funny, but it's funny in the sense of the way things get spun. Um, a thing in Edmonton right now is there's a lot of stuff on hate crimes. A lot of the hate crimes that they're putting out there are committed by other minorities. Yeah. And if if it is a white person, though, the first thing they'll put in the headline is that it's a white person. So 100%. I find like, where's the truth? And This is in everything right now. Like you're saying, everybody wants to panic. Gun debate, definitions are completely out of whack. Hate crimes, definitions are completely out of whack. And and people are reinventing words and reinventing narratives. It's uh, That's the dangerous part. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned definitions, Nathan, because in about 2017, the government changed their vocabulary to talk about terrorism. So when I worked for the service, we called it what it was, Islamist terrorism, Sikh terrorism, uh, mm-hmm. Jewish terrorism in the West Bank, right-wing terrorism, environmental terrorism, First Nations terrorism, try to get that that term out nowadays. Of course, people will just will crucify you. Um, I've never even heard of that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, church burnings. Church burnings are serious acts of violence, mm-hmm. it, it, which, would, which would qualify as a terrorist attack under Section 83.01 of the Criminal Code. It's a serious act of violence for political reasons. Mm. And that, that's terrorism. That's that, that is a terrorism under the criminal code. Um, I'll get back to hate crime in a second. But anyhow, the government decided uh, back in 2017 that these terms are no longer acceptable. Because uh, there was a lobby group saying that Islamist terrorism was actually an Islamophobic term. Despite the fact it's been used 
in the use for 30 or 40 years amongst academics, amongst practitioners. So what the government did is they changed all their terminology. They, use, they now use three acronyms. Um, the first time, the first one is called ideologically motivated violent extremism, IMBE. Mm-hmm. The second is politically motivated violent extremism, PMBE. And the third is religiously motivated, so RMBE. And this is actually the language in Section 83.01 of the Criminal Code, where terrorism is an act of violence, serious violence, carried out for ideological, political, religious reasons. The problem is that it's inaccurate. So um, a group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda would be defined by the criminal code as RMBE. But ISIS is more than a religion. It's an ideology. It's also a political system. So it's all three simultaneously. We can't use those terms anymore. And IMBE is a dog's breakfast A to Z. Mm -hmm. It's got the far right. It's got neo-Nazis. It's got violent incels. It's got conspiracy theorists, it's got accelerationists, it's got neo-fascists, it's got the far left, it's got, uh, you name it, uh, anti-abortion attacks. They're all under IMV. So as an analyst, you want to be precise, not vague. So you say it's, it's an MV attack. Well, what, what, what part of MV? Like, why can't you be more specific? Is the guy a neo-Nazi or not? Does he wear a fucking swastika on his arm or does he not? Mm-hmm. Okay, because if he does, he's probably a neo-Nazi. If he's some other wanker, call him what he is kind of thing. So, so we run into trouble there. Secondly, um, the government does not report or rarely reports anything to do with Islamist extremism anymore. Yeah. Because it's not the soup of the day. Despite the fact, as I said, and I've got the data to back it up, on a global basis, they are carrying out 99% of all the attacks. And even our Western partners are still arresting people on Islamist terrorist plots yeah. on a weekly basis. So it, it hasn't disappeared. Like I said, the far right it warrants more look now than it did 20 years ago because they've gotten slightly better. The second mistake that people make is say, well, look at all the hate online. I said, do you have any idea how much hate online translates into action in the real world? Yeah. Virtually none. Any idiot can post stupid shit online. Well, and how much of it is real? And they're, they're, most of them are cowards, and they have no, they have no intent. Yeah, like, and, and then you see all the things about bots nowadays. So people are just putting things out there. Who knows how many of that, that that's real? There's also just stupid teenagers that just post yep. things, but they're being turned into, uh, um, like, you know, you're a teenager, you say one wrong word, and now you're being investigated for a hate crime. Like, yep. well, that's going to have some serious impact on your future yeah. when it's not okay. really a hate crime. Like, people are not looking at things in perspective. They just want to scream and shout, get their fame, uh, get their attention, you know, whatever it may be. Exactly. And hate crime is a different part of the criminal code. Mm -hmm. Hate crime is section 319. And hate crime is defined as an act of violence directed at at somebody because of who that person is. Their skin color, their gender, their sex, their ethnicity, whatever kind of thing. doesn't talk about ideology. It just says, I, you know, I ran you over because I don't like black people or I don't like First Nations or I don't like old white men that have white beards. That's a hate crime. It's not ideologically motivated. So we have a case in London, Ontario, my hometown, couple summers ago where a guy ran over a Pakistani immigrant family and he's been charged with terrorism. So much I said, based on what? Mm-hmm. I can see it as a hate crime. He probably targeted them because they were dressed in Pakistani, you know, dressed in Pakistani clothing. He had the thing against immigrants for whatever reason and decided to run them over. That's not an act of terrorism. That's a hate crime. And yet we're confusing the two. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would argue that incels is probably a hate crime. It's probably violent misogyny. A true incel. Is probably a violent misogynist. I can't get laid. I'm going to kill a woman as a, as a consequence. Then that's not an act of terrorism. There's no ideology behind that. Well, go it's to any hate. go to any bar on most weekends, and you'll find a whole <laughs> bunch of guys that 
Mark Antley and, and the, the ladies <laughs> exactly. there have their choice of whoever they want to go. Well, with. <laughs> and so this is where we're at as of you know late uh, December of 2022 is that the vocabulary has been changed. The way we cover this information has been changed. Mm-hmm. Um, we're being led to believe that somehow the threat has mutated significantly, yet the facts don't support that. And that's what I, my, my fear is that Canadians are being misinformed, which is, again, going back to why I do media, is to point these things out. I have no idea whether I'm having any impact or people listen to me. I frankly don't care. I mean, listen to me, don't listen to me. I don't care. It's still your boots, right? But you can't base a theory without any facts. Yeah. And as I said, when's the last time in Canada we had something which you would definitively qualify as a significant right-wing attack? And my answer is 2017 in Quebec City when a guy walked into a mosque. And that was probably a hate crime. Interestingly, the Crown did not charge him with terrorism. Mm. They charged him with five counts of first-degree murder. Why? Because murder is easier to prove than terrorism. Yeah. Right? Yep. Did, did the person pull the trigger? Yes. That he's guilty of murder. Why do you do it? We frankly don't care. Because the penalty for first-degree murder, as you're well aware, is life. Minimum 25 years. The penalty for terrorism is life, minimum 25 years. What's the difference? Yeah. Why, why put the extra pressure on the Crown to prove motivation when you don't have to? Whereas it, with a hate crime, the judge and or jury actually has a bit of an extra advantage. If I beat you up because, uh, you know, I beat you up in this Edmonton um, transit, I get, you know, five years for assault. If I beat you up because I don't like white guys, that's now a hate crime. Now I get 10 years in jail instead of five years in jail mm-hmm. under the way that the sentencing guidelines read for hate crime. So, yeah, we're... We're at this this stage now, and I mean, I apologize if it sounds like an old white guy complaining, but um, there's a culture out there that doesn't want to hear things the way they really are. They've decided, uh, remember the confirmation bias, right? They've decided um, it's all about you know, angry white men. Um, and yeah, there are some angry white men. Look at what happened in the U.S. Capitol in mm-hmm. January of, of 2021, right? But that wasn't an act of terrorism. That was, that was, that was a, a frat party gone wrong. That was a riot. Mm-hmm. That was not an act of terrorism. Because yeah. I mean, it, it, it didn't meet the definition as far as I'm concerned. But anyhow, um, I don't, I don't want to belabor this point, but I think the, the important lesson you know, for, for your listeners is that whatever you read, look at who's saying it. What is the background of the yes. person? What is the agenda the person has? Has it been corroborated from multiple sources? What are they trying to get you to think and why? I mean, as an intelligence analyst, you, you, know, you corroborate, and as a police officer, you, you corroborate information from multiple sources. So don't rely on the same source all the time because the same source can be wrong. I've been wrong in the past, mm-hmm. incredibly wrong in the past. So don't take everything I say as gospel. Make sure that you you match it against people who have equal access and have thought about these things. Well, and you know what? I, and people need to get back to a place where they are taking taking it upon themselves to find, uh, uh, I'll say, the balance. So if you're going to read something from whatever you want to call it, a left wing kind of news outlet we'll go find a right one and then see yeah. where are the similarities what are the differences yeah. why are those yeah. differences there and then yeah. Yeah. yeah knowing the motivation behind why people are writing something is huge um don't take everything at face value you know um yeah yeah there's a whole lot that needs to change when it comes to just uh news intel getting things out there make sure yeah. people are well informed but exactly. yeah you know yeah. You're, you're definitely not wrong um I don't want to keep sorry, you too, well, too. Sorry, oh, sorry. Yeah. sorry. One example, Nathan, yeah. what you, you identify with is, you know, is um, cell phone cameras of police interactions. Yes. So you get a six second cell phone uh, shot of a police officer doing something. Mm-hmm. And this is racist or whatever kind of thing. So 
the encounter with the individual lasted an hour and a half. And six seconds are uploaded to the internet. And those six seconds define that interaction. Yep. Not the negotiation before, not what the guy did six seconds prior to them filming kind of thing, but merely the officer's response to the situation. And that's what said, oh, this is clearly a racist police officer. I said, yeah. did you watch the entire 90 minutes? Yeah. No, why not? Because the person who posted it knew that it's these six seconds that are going to be influential. And that's why they posted those six seconds and not the previous six seconds. So yeah, just further your point, um, be critical. Be critical of information that's out there because people have agendas and they want you to believe certain things. And you as a consumer of information, if you want to be well-informed, you have a responsibility to go beyond that and say, okay, that's, that's person A's interpretation of the event. What about person B, person C, person Z? What do they see about this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And only then can you consider yourself be well-informed and therefore make your own decisions on what all this stuff means. Well, I don't envy the job of like the chief, uh, you know, when we just had something recently where somebody pushed somebody and, and then the six second clip comes out and everybody's yep. screaming and shouting and they're, they, they're demanding answers. But you already know, no matter what you say and what you, yep. what you go at, uh, give to them, they're just waiting to say the next thing uh, to complain about or yep. something. So as soon as yep. you give them, a, even if it's the most rational response and you put all the stuff out, uh, they'll just start saying, well, you doctored the video or you are yeah. still hiding something. And it's like, yeah. you, you're yeah. never satisfied. <laughs> Nothing's ever good no. enough. So where's the end of it, right? Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I think you're, you're spot on with how you're kind of, you're saying this. So um, I don't want to keep you all day. I mean, I could talk to you forever. There's lots <laughs> we could get to and I still haven't even got to some of the points I want to, but we'll have to have you back on. But I do. Part two. <laughs> yes, I want to make sure that you get a chance to kind of talk about some of the work you've done and how people can sure. follow you because you got a bunch of books, you've got a podcast, yep. you're on social yep. media. Yep. So, okay. where Great. should people well, follow you? Where to start? Uh, well, if you have too much time on your hands, you want to hear an old old white guy rant once in a while. Um, so the website is borealisthreatenedrisk.com. So borealis, as in the Northern Lights, I chose the name on on, on purpose. But I have to have a, 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 a very short story to make you laugh. Yeah. So when I, I decided as an old white guy, I, I bought a Mustang back in 2018, and I decided to get vanity plates. And I wanted to get Borealis with a vanity plate, but Borealis had been taken. So I had to settle for Boreal, B-O-R-E-L-T-R. So Borealis Threat and Risk, Boreal-T-R. And I was up at my cottage uh, one day, and I was in town uh, doing some shopping, and this, this old, old guy on the front porch said, uh, um, can you take a look at my house and see if it will sell? I said, excuse me, sir? He says, yeah, I, I, I want to list my house. I said, well, why are you looking at me? He says, well, your license says, says Bo the Realtor. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess you read the other half. So now my kids call me Bo, Bo the Realtor. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so yeah, BorealisThreatRisk.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at BorealisShaves, which is kind of a, a bit of a play on words. Not only do I, I try to save people, but I'm a goaltender, although I'm a really, really bad one. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I've written six books to date on terrorism. The most recent one is going to be republished in uh, in the spring by Double Dagger in Toronto. It was self-published originally. It's called The Peaceable Kingdom, A History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation to the Present. It was a book written. Um, all of my sources were former CSIS and RCMP who worked in counterterrorism. It's going to be republished in the spring by Double Dagger. Um, my blogs are on my website. I do um, also a podcast called Canadian Intelligence Day, where I talk to interesting people who worked in counterterrorism and counterintelligence. And yeah, you'll see, you'll hear me periodically on CBC whenever they, uh, if they still like me, I've said some things that don't, they don't like. So I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a <laughs> less frequent guest on CBC than I was historically, but no, it's, um, 
I try to get information out there. I try to get good information out there. I sometimes I'm sure I tweet things that are not true and I apologize for that, but I'm just trying to get the conversation going mm-hmm. and, and get us to start thinking critically of these things. These are important issues, but the bottom line is, and I'm sure you appreciate this as a law enforcement officer. We are a very safe country, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been a parts of the world. I was in Mali a couple of years ago doing some work. Uh, you know, the jihadis were a few kilometers outside the capital. Um, you know, I've never been to Afghanistan, but of course I've had friends that served in Afghanistan, uh, you know, places like Somalia, Nigeria. I mean, these are really, really dangerous places where lots of people died. And we don't have that here in Canada. We do have challenges in national security, public safety, but they pale in comparison to what other countries have to deal with. And I think we need to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Not only do we have really good protectors with law enforcement, such as yourself and security intelligence, but generally speaking, we are a safe country in Canada. So we can't ignore national security, nor should we. But let's not get into panic porn. Um, yeah. You know, the, 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 the barbarians are not at the gates. Um, you know, the accelerationists are not going to take over tomorrow. The neo-Nazis aren't going to be, you know, doing a big Heil salute on Parliament Hill anytime soon with our government. So let's, let's just keep these in perspective. I mean, we, we, we've built a lot of good things here in Canada. And let's, let's keep reminding ourselves of that. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. If you could hang on the line for a second, I'll say bye offline. Yep. But uh, I want to say thanks for coming in, educating us, oh, and uh, kind of going through some of the topics that we got through. We got through a lot. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. Like I said, I'm always, again, man, I'm just the old retired guy, you know, sitting in my house doing needlepoint. So if uh, you want to do a part two at some point, uh, just give me a shout. Great. We'll just hang on the line there.